join me please by turning in your Bibles to the 18th chapter of the Gospel of John. John 18. <clears throat> we have in expounding this chapter considered the arrest of our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We further have considered the denial of Christ by Peter, one of the inner circle of his disciples. This morning, we will consider the remaining portion of this chapter as we concentrate on Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. We'll read verse 19 through 24 and then skipping over that portion of Simon Peter's denial, which we've already considered. We'll read from verse 28 to the end of the chapter, beginning with verse 19 of John chapter 18. The high priest, therefore, asked Jesus of his disciples and of his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And in secret spoke I nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask them that have heard me what I spoke unto them. Behold, these know the things which I said. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with, with his hand. Some translators believe this to be with a rod, saying, Answerest you the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why are you smiting me? Annas, therefore, sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, I want to make a comment at this point for your understanding of this passage. When the Lord responded with this question, why do you why do you ask me, why don't you ask those that heard me, he was not being insolent. He was not being uh, cute or cheeky. He was appealing to the legal process. It was not appropriate to ask a witness to bear witness against himself before first having gathered other witnesses against him. And this was an illegal proceeding. And in our Lord's guilelessness and in his utter commitment to legality and truth, he simply asks, innocently, why are you asking me? There are others, the witnesses are plentiful, they've heard me, I haven't said anything in secret, ask those, you'll get a much, a, a very objective uh, witness against me. I've spoken in public, I don't have any secret truths, uh, ask them. This was not a, a smart aleck Response. It was an honest and legal and appropriate response, which in it carried a conscience stinger to the one that asked the question. But the response of the officer standing by was that he assumed it was insolent, and since no one ever could ask these men any questions at all, they had to bow down and worship these who lorded it over them. He struck the Lord on the face. And then Jesus, again, in utter commitment to the simplicity of truth, said, If I've spoken evil, bear witness of it. You're hitting me. 
bear witness of the sin I've committed against the law of God. Where is it? If I'm not, then why are you hitting me? A simple, and I can imagine the guileless look on his face. The simple, guileless question, why are you hitting me? What did I say that was wrong? If I did, bear witness of it. Again, with a conscience stinger in it, it's not appropriate to punish somebody unless you first bear witness of what exactly was his sin. Generic punishment is not appropriate. What did I do wrong? So this is an innocent response of a guileless man responding to those who are far from guileless. Then taking it up in verse 28. They lead Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas into the Praetorium. Now what has happened? He had gone from Annas to Caiaphas, probably in the same house across the courtyard to the apartment where Caiaphas, who was the acting high priest, was now staying. And then from Caiaphas, John omits the interview with Caiaphas, from Caiaphas into the Praetorium, into the palace, into the house where Pilate would be passing judgment. And it was early. Literally, it was between the hour of 3 and 6 a.m. at the fourth watch of the morning. And they themselves entered not into the Praetorium. Note the irony. They themselves would not go into the house of this Gentile that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. The Passover of all things. Pilate, therefore, went out to them and says, What accusation bring you against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man weren't an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him up to you. In other words, there is no accusation. They're insulted that he would even question their integrity. Don't you know who we are? We wouldn't have brought him if there weren't something terribly wrong. But see, he's following a legal procedure. Bear witness against him of the charges. This is Roman law. The Roman wicked people were more righteous in this than the Jews, than the people of God or than the people who were known as the people of God. He's trying to do it legally. They refused to give him a straight answer. Verse 31 continues, Pilate therefore said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Apparently the Romans had a law. They had taken away the right of capital punishment from the Jews. Apparently there might have been an exception made in the case of blatant blasphemy or some great sin that they could stone somebody. We're not sure. But this is probably a reference to the legality of the Roman system that the Jews no longer had the power to pass judgment and to put somebody to death. Therefore, he is not able to be stoned according to their law. Now notice again the irony. They are so fastidious about keeping the law. Sorry, we can't do that. It would be illegal for us to do that. This whole thing is illegal. It's before dawn, which was against the law. He's not had any witnesses so far against him, and he's already been smitten, bound, arrested, and charged. But they want to keep the law. And then, the wonderful verse 32, that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying by what manner of death he should die. In other words, since the Jews weren't going to be able to kill him, he was going to have to be put to death by the Romans, which would be crucifixion. He had already prophesied that that's the way he was going to die. What's going on here is the machinations of men behind which is the word of Christ determining every detail. This is the working out of God's will and the statements of Christ which must come to pass despite the plans of men. Proceeding, verse 33. 
Pilate, therefore, entered again into the praetorium and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of yourself? In other words, is this something you have thought about yourself? Is there something going on in your conscience? Or did others tell it you concerning me? Is this simply a rumor you've heard? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? He's trying to get Jesus to confess his own sin again, his own crime. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? In other words, you you did speak of being a king and having a kingdom. Are then you are a king then? Jesus answered, You said that I'm a king. Literally, or actually, he's saying, You said it. The, The truth has come out of your own mouth. To this end have I been born, and to this end am I come into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate says to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no crime in him. But you have a custom that I should release to you one at the Passover. Will you therefore that I release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out therefore again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Again, let us bow and pray. Our Father, we are not able to expound these precious words adequately. And so we depend upon grace from you, and therefore we ask for it. With hearts expectant to receive what we ask, because our minds are filled with passages from the scriptures wherein you have promised to answer such cries. O God, our gracious and loving Father, come now by your Spirit And let your people hear your voice opening up the truths through the instrumentality of earthen vessel. Overcome our weakness, forgive our sins, and give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to this church. O God, address our hearts and deal with our hearts and give us liberty in the preaching of your word. We ask it not because we deserve it, but in the name of our righteous Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The first thing I want to consider with you from this passage, having done something of a running commentary of a portion of it, is the contrast between the Lord Jesus and those that surrounded him regarding the difference between truth and lie. But in order to introduce the sermon... I remind you that the theme that we've chosen, Jesus, the faithful high priest, is saturated in this text. 
In Romans chapter, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, the Lord introduces him to the seven churches of Asia Minor to which the revelation is sent as the faithful witness. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, in one of the epistles to one of the churches, he is called the faithful and true witness and the Amen. In John chapter 8, verse 14, the Lord says to them, Though others may bear witness of me, and though I may bear witness only of myself, nevertheless, my witness is true. And then in Revelation 19.11, when we are taught, shown the beautiful description of Christ on the stallion coming upon his thigh, written, Lord of lords and King of kings, he also is called the faithful and true. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, the Apostle Paul, in writing to his disciple and helper Timothy, reminds him of the faithful and good confession that Jesus Christ made before Pontius Pilate. He says it to one who tends to be timid and to be afraid of taking a stand for the truth. Timothy has a built-in timidity. His tummy even seems to have a frequent a sickness about it, perhaps connected to his worry. And that the apostle has to tell him, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of love and of power and of self-control. So do not be ashamed of me and my bonds, he says to Timothy. And in chapter 6 of the first epistle, he reminds him of Jesus Christ, who made a good confession before Pontius Pilate. And that brings us to look back at this event in his trial and in his conviction before Pilate and the others, to think of this designation that Paul... Uh, took out of his experience and the thing he quotes was that Jesus made a good confession and it draws our mind out to consider the confession of truth the faithful witness the word of God notice the centrality of the idea of truth in this section of scripture verse 32 as we saw it that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled the heaviest weight perhaps of this whole section of the scripture is on the truth. Now this concept is not foreign at all to John. His whole gospel takes up the contrast between darkness and light. Between truth, the truth being in you, the truth setting you free. I am the way, the truth and the life. Truth is high on the agenda of John's gospel and John's message. We are looking at one who in the very darkest hour of his human experience bore faithful witness to the truth. One who is the truth and one who could do no other than speak the truth even against opposition. Now you can see that the Jews' witness in verse 30 is that he's an evildoer. Pontius Pilate's position is, what's truth? But the Lord Jesus Christ has nothing but truth. As one has said about John Bunyan, if you were to cut him, he would bleed bibbling. With the Lord Jesus, if you could look at any part of coming out of his heart, it would be true truth. He is incapable of anything but that. And that's what I want to concentrate on in our sermon on this passage. Jesus, the faithful witness. Contrast him first with the liars surrounding him. Now I call them liars because the Lord had called them liars.
turn back with me, if you will, to John chapter 8 for a moment. Verse 44. John 8, 44. He's speaking to this crowd of followers from among the Hebrews. They don't understand his, speak about, uh, his speech about Abraham. He has said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. And they are boasting in their descendants from Abraham and assuming, therefore, that they are in no need of any liberation. He has said, the truth will make you free. They said, who do you think we are? Why do we need to be free? We've never been in bondage to anybody. We are God's chosen people. And then he says, uh, if you were Abraham's children, as you claim to be, and not in bondage to anybody, you would be living the way Abraham lived. But you don't live the way Abraham lived, and that proves you're not Abraham's children. Then in verse 44, he finally tells it clearly to them. You are of your father, the devil. And the lusts of your father, it is your will to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and stands not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father thereof. So Jesus has said to them plainly, you are of your father, the devil, who has no truth in him, and when he speaks a lie, he is only speaking what is native to his nature. He can do no other. He speaks lies, and only lies because his father is a liar. That's the typical follower of Jesus, the majority of the followers of Christ at this time. He calls them the children of the devil and therefore liars. Now look at these who surround him. First of all, consider that they are self-deceived. Often, liars are not lying because they are convinced that what they're saying is a lie. One of the most disarming things about some liars is that they believe what they're saying. They are sincere. They are zealous. One of the greatest fears of any preacher that has a conscience is that he may, with sincere zeal, misrepresent the truth of God's Word. It's been done... It'll be done again, and it's always not very far from truth to error. And every man who's a teacher of the things of God feels the weight of that extra judgment that comes upon him in handling the Word of God. Many of us have had much confessing of sin to do over the years of our preaching as we've gone back and found more fully things in the Scriptures that we did not adequately understand when we first preached them. It's a shameful thing. It's an embarrassing thing. But it happens. But sometimes men who are greatly convinced that what they're saying is true can lead others astray because of the very sincerity of their speaking. They seem so honest, it's hard to believe they would be lying or manipulating. These people were self-deceived. Jesus had predicted that they will think they do God a service when they put you to death. They will kill Christians thinking they're pleasing God totally sincere in their zeal for God and God's truth, they put to death those that preach that truth. The Pharisees were the epitome of that. Zealous against everything Jesus did and said, just as we read in Matthew 12 this morning. 
condemning the healing of a crippled man on the Sabbath and seeking how they might destroy the healer. Sincerely doing God a service. Now you've got to think back. What was, their, what was their perspective? This man was coming into Israel and overthrowing, as they understood it, the law of Moses. This man was breaking God's law from their vantage point. He is violating sacred religious tradition. He's a troublemaker, a, resurrect, a, a, a revolutionary. This man is not to be trusted. We must get rid of him. He's breaking God's law. We've got to serve God. We've got to defend orthodoxy. We must not hear him. That's their spirit. The same spirit that stoned Stephen. Now we know that beneath the surface, it was their conscience that drove them to stopping their ears to the message. It was where he condemned them by his speech and his life that they could not tolerate his speech. But they thought they were doing God a service. They were self-deceived. In John chapter 9, they asked him, after he spoke of blindness and sight, and the reason he came into the world was that so, so that those who were blind might see, they said, are we blind? You're not, you're not saying we are blind. You don't, you're not referring to us when you say you came into the world that the blind might see. Not we. And remember he said, if you saw your blindness, you could see. But since you say we see, you're blind. Remember that? Well, their perspective was that they could see. They were of the truth. They told the truth. They understood the truth. They're orthodox. Jesus' perspective is, which is the true perspective, they are of their father, the devil, who is the father of lies and liars. And they are blind. In Second Timothy chapter 3, the apostle speaks of imposters. Those that present themselves as servants of God, as prophets of God, as preachers of God, in the name of God, with gospel language upon their lips, and with gospel garb, as being imposters. And he says, But evil men and imposters, or seducers, will wax worse and worse, and then he characterizes them, deceiving and being deceived. They are not only deceiving others, they themselves continue to plunge deeper and deeper in self-deceit. It's one of the characteristics of lying religion. It really believes that what it's saying is true. That explains why many who are so wrong are so zealous and so dedicated and why they would give their money and their lives for what they believe. Sincerity is not, as we define it, is not the final test of truth. Good intentions even at the level at which we would see them, are not the final test of truth. They're self-deceived. But second, they're consummate hypocrites. Look at verse 28 of John 18. We cited it as we read it. The second part of the verse. These people who had zealously arrested Jesus, had taken him to Annas, now we're taking him to Pilate to get the Romans' permission to crucify him, to put him to death. These people 
would not enter the praetorium. Under the roof of a Gentile, it would make them unclean for Passover observance. And we won't discuss all the timing of this. There are much to be said in the commentators. I'm not going to take the time to discuss whether this means that the Passover feast itself had not yet begun as the meal, or whether they were, this was Thursday or Friday or Wednesday. Uh, I think that's not the main point. The point is, their attitude was, we don't want to defile ourselves in the least way in what we're doing here. We're not going into this Gentile's house. We want to eat the Passover. The height of the hypocrisy. Now, they're sincere about this. But while they are straining out the net of defilement, they're swallowing the camel of the true Passover. They want to eat the Passover with pure, undefiled hands and hearts. They won't tread into the household of a Gentile during this period, but they'll kill the true Passover lamb. As Paul says, Christ is our Passover. We're to feed on him. But these rejected him so they could keep the shadow and destroy the substance. What hypocrisy. Discerning men can always see this kind of hypocrisy in the zealous who fight truth in the name of truth. They entered not so they wouldn't be defiled. They're about to lay their hands. They've just laid their hands on the Son of God and they don't want to be defiled. Then in verse 31, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Oh, how consumed they were with their religion. It's not legal. We, we don't do anything illegal. We can't put a man to death. We only have him here because you're the guy that has to decide this stuff. They would have killed him in a moment had they been able to. They'd tried on several occasions. Now they're presenting themselves as law-abiding citizens. If they could get rid of the Romans at any time, they would gladly do so. They despise the Romans. It's the same people who later on say, we have no king but Caesar. But in their private meetings, they're praying for and longing for the day when they can kick Caesar out of the throne and take over again. In fact, it's this very point that makes them so negative about the Lord Jesus, that he is not becoming as their Messiah is supposed to come and throwing over their enemies and setting them back up in, in the world. They have a problem with his kingdom. Pilate has a problem with his kingdom. His kingdom is not as any of them expected. It's not of this world. And so he becomes a stumbling block to them. How consumed they were. Passover, the high, holy season, they were zealous for every detail of its, its observance. But I tell you again that zeal and precision in religion are not necessarily proofs of true religion. Sincerity is not proof of truth. Zeal and precision are not necessarily proof of true religion. You may develop a scheme of theology that is the most intricate in the world and have a Bible verse for every scheme and be dead wrong. Now, I don't say that to make you stumble and cause you to say, well, then, how do we know whom to follow? But I do say it so you can understand that throughout the world there are brilliant men preaching error and lie. And some of them are very appealing. And some of them are very brilliant in the way they get precise and detailed in their theology. And their zeal is impressive. I quite honestly would tell you that it is the primary reason that we do not in this place feature a whipping up of our young people 
into an emotional frenzy for Christ. We don't try to develop programs that will get the kids all excited for Jesus. We would rather have them conduct themselves in a careful study of their Bibles. To combine that study with the multitude of counselors who can spare them their youthful foolishness. To guard against misplaced zeal. We would spare them from becoming 30 and 40 year olds regretting their teenage years in which they did so many silly things in the name of Christ and wish they could go back and find all those people they influenced and apologize. Some of us were there and we would spare you. We're not trying to turn you into flaming, burning candles for Jesus. There is a sense in which zealousness for Christ is lacking in our culture, but we're not trying to whip you into that, and there's a reason for it. Because zeal is not always evidence of true religion. It's very easy to get excited for Christ and miss the point. You can go off to a retreat for young people, and you can get very moved by preaching and hymn singing, and it may be good stuff. And you therefore assume that your life has been transformed because of the way you feel. But what can happen to you is you can never again quite get excited unless you're back in that same setting. You live for the retreat again. An ordinary old common Lord's Day where the preacher's just preaching some subject that's not directed at a 16-year-old sort of bores you. And you actually hope you can convince your parents that they can't expect you to be giving yourself to these things because it is not directed particularly at you around whom the universe revolves. It's the nature of youth. Don't be offended that I say that to you. It's the nature of youth to think that the world revolves around you. You're almost completely self-centered. It's a glorious thing to see a teenager who's doing things for other people without being asked. It's a rare thing. It's what ought to be reproduced over and over among the teenagers in a church like this. You shouldn't be like the rest of the world like that. You ought to think of others. You ought not to complain about what you didn't get, about how many friends you don't have. You shouldn't look at a church and say, well, there aren't any people my age in that church. Yeah, there are. There's you. Well, it sounds funny, but that's what you're not thinking about. You're supposed to be here to provide a people of that age rather than to demand the people of that age. Stand on your own and get out in high school and find out how many of those you can influence. If you're so righteous, influence them. Bring them. It can be done. They may not stay. We grown-ups have had the same experience. We brought our friends and some of them didn't stay, but some of them did. This place is filled with people that are sitting here from a trail of connections with others that are sitting here. And if you could trace it down, very few of you are here out of, the, out of osmosis. Most of you came because somebody you knew was already coming and said, come to church with me. I want you to hear what I hear and meet whom I know. We don't want to whip the kids into a frenzy. We don't want them to think that because they feel excited for Christ, they found the truth. But see, liars never make a careful study of the truth. They abhor the multitude of counselors. They separate themselves. They don't like anybody's voice bothering their thinking. And they get on a, like a roller coaster. And like finally a train that's going downhill and gaining momentum. Don't get in their way. They know the truth. They don't consult proven guides. 
They get their sermons from their own heads and they call it the Holy Spirit. I'm on a mailing list of some people who are convinced that the Lord has revealed to them truths that he's not told anybody else. And they send me the latest on what's going to happen next week in the Middle East. When it doesn't, I'm tempted to write them back and say, Yes, but I don't have time to wait to get all bogged down in that. And I know the nature of those people is I would then be in a weekly correspondence trip. I'm on the mailing list of one person who informs me regularly that everything he's written and the thing that he writes me came directly from the Lord. I'm supposed to believe it because of that. God gave this to me. It's outside of Scripture, but in order to get me to read it, he tells me God gave it to him. I don't believe him. I don't believe him. So we need to understand that sometimes the liars have deceived themselves and they become consummate hypocrites while they preach zealously and while they get precise in their religion. Oftentimes they, as Jesus said, swallow whole camels while they're straining out nets. Notice their methods in contrast to Jesus. These men met behind closed doors, plotting his overthrow. They had him arrested before dawn against the law. They come out as against the thief. They, everything they do has the taste and flavor and smell of sinister to it. How's Jesus function? Verse 20. He said, I've been preaching openly. In synagogue is literally the, the language, meaning whenever the people gather in the synagogue, I've been there. The place where Jews frequent the worship, I'm there. It's been my habit. Ask the people, I've preached public. I've not preached anything in secret. And what he means by that is, I have no double message. There are things he said to the apostles, and he said, don't tell the world. But they weren't elements of truth that he did not intend for the world to know. They were degrees of revelation in history that it was not yet time to open up. For instance, his messiahship. Don't tell anybody about the miracles I've just done because they're going to try to make me a king too soon. That's what he, but his teaching, he was not ashamed of it. He didn't have a public sermon and public presentation like the Mormons. And then when you get to know them more privately, you find out the wretchedness of their wicked demonic theology. They have a plot and a plan. They introduce themselves as angels of light and connect themselves with things they know you already believe. We believe the Bible. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in salvation by grace. We believe, and they know what you, they've studied what you believe, and they come into your homes most frequently on Sunday morning while you're supposed to be in church. They come to your house. Jehovah's Witnesses are excellent at that methodology. They know if you're not in church on Sunday morning, you're vulnerable. It's one of their primary methods. And they've taken a lot of sheep away. Because they got them when they weren't in the crowd and when, with the flock and at the feeding trough. But they'll come and they'll start with what you believe and they'll show you how they agree with you. And it'll lower your defenses. And then they'll ask you to come to a service. And the Mormons are good at this. They actually, I'm told, have a service during the week in some of their Mormon places that they design for whatever denomination of people they're going to bring to that service. In other words, they get the Baptist this week and it's going to, they're going to have a sort of a Baptist-like service. And you'll come on a Tuesday night or something. They'll sing some hymns out of your hymnal. They'll have prayer. They'll talk about Jesus. And you're sitting there and you remember your pastor said these people have demonic religion. And you're thinking, wait a minute, this is not so bad. 
I don't see. And it lowers your esteem and respect for your pastors, and it softens you up to what's coming next. If they were to tell you on the television, we're the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We believe that Jesus was originally the brother of Satan. Most of you would say, those people are a cult. That's why they don't tell you that on that advertisement. If they say, we're Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Jesus was really blonde-headed and blue-eyed and appeared to a Western group of Gentiles in Mexico and in the Incas and, and had another message for the Western world that was different from what he had for the Eastern world, you'd say, whoa, that sounds a little funny to me. So they don't tell you that when they first introduce themselves. They don't tell you they have more than one book that's inspired of God, right at the beginning. They're beginning to say it, if you've noticed... They're in, increasing the ante on their ads because they've had a, a, a several-year plan in which they've set you up now. They're beginning to let you know a little more. And now people are not so bothered by it because they've gotten accustomed to these wonderful people that produce the Donnies and Maries of our world. And that's a part of the plot, too. Now, why am I doing that? Am I off the subject? No. It is the nature of lying to plot behind closed doors and have a double motive and to tell you one thing out in public and another in private. That's not the nature of Christ. There are pearls that aren't to be cast before swine, but, but those pearls do not contradict what we do feed the swine. I'm not going to tell a person that I'm witnessing to who's never heard of the Bible, I'm not going to start with the biblical doctrine of eschatology. I'm not going to start with a hypostatic union of Christ. Because it would take me an hour to define what that word means. That's not to the point of the problem. The doctrine's important, but I have to be sensitive to his present situation and need. But with some of you that have been taught, we can get into some of those things. We're not contradicting. We don't have any shame for what we're teaching. We don't have a secret agenda. The Lord doesn't. That's my point. I've spoken openly. No double message. You see, the Lord is perfectly secure in the testimony of those that have heard him. He has witnesses and he's been consistent. And if they quote him, his test, it'll stand. And if they quote him wrong, there'll be others saying, no, that's not what he said. I was there. He's been consistent. See that contrast here? And how guileless is the Lord. How simple and guileless he is. Oh, I wish I were more like him. Jesus appeals to these who slap him and he says, bear witness of what I did wrong. How innocent and guileless. There was no guile found in his mouth. We need to be that way so that we don't calculate every word as to how it can manipulate the hearer and aren't always assuming that somehow there's some sinister motive and therefore we play around with words and play games. It'll get you all balled up if you do that. It's much better just to figure out what the truth is and speak it when it's called upon to be spoken and not to be ashamed of it. Oh, blessed ministry that is able to say, ask those that have sat under me. I'm, I'll rest content with their testimony. You ought to be able to say when people come to you and question your church and its integrity, most of them have never been here, and they tell you about what's wrong with your church. And when they do that, you ought to be able to say, well, I don't know, I'm not in a position to defend us to tell you, why don't you come and see? You want to talk to our pastors and find out what they believe? They're open, their lines are open, call them. I'll meet with you. Bring a friend, bring your pastor. We're not afraid. 
We're not ashamed. And if you find something where we're wrong in the Bible, we would want you to tell us so we can correct it. If your motives are pure, you're not afraid to have that approach. So when you have something to hide and your conscience is bugging you that you're afraid of people questioning you. Those that are most studious in the truth are least afraid of people checking out their message. Well, that's the contrast. The Lord says he came into the world for the purpose of bearing witness to the truth regarding his kingdom, which is not of this world. Peter has known in John chapter 6 and confessed, Thou hast the words of eternal life. There's a great contrast between him and the others. But second, note also in this passage the exclusive claims on truth that Jesus has. Christ possesses exclusive, absolute claims on truth. Verse 37. Pilate said, All right, you're a king then. Jesus said, You said it. I'm a king. To this end have I been born, and to this end am I come into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Now that is a drastic statement, brethren. Now note the difference between that statement and the leader of a Hebrew of a Hindu movement. That there are lots of paths of truth, lots of ways to truth, lots of options. Now, which one sounds the most loving and the most merciful and the most broad-minded? Well, the Hindu approach sounds that way. It's designed to sound that way. You have your way, I have mine. I have found, in fact, a religion that can incorporate all of our ways. The Baha'i faith is very uh, brilliant in that. I think they have nine doors from different sides. You can come in through the Jesus door and you can come in through some other doors. And that sort of accommodate everybody. The problem with that is it's absolutely patently absurd. Oh, I mean just common sense it's absurd. Because by definition, every single religion in the world is mutually exclusive of all others. Because the Baha'i faith, which says you can get in through all the doors, contradicts what the others say that say you can't get in through all those doors. And the very ones that he's claiming can get in are contradicting his because they don't believe that you can get in through the other door. At least eight of his doors are entered by people that don't believe the other eight work. And therefore deny the very essence of the way he puts his building up. Sounds appealing. We want broad-mindedness. But Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to life. Straight is the gate. Compressed is the way. I am the way the truth and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. Those are drastic claims. Let's face that up front. Let's understand those are drastic claims. They're unprecedented claims. They are radical claims. Now the question is, are they true? Does he have a right to make such a claim? Everyone who is of the truth hears me. What an audacious claim! What boldness! Everyone who is of the truth hears me. If I said that, you'd start thinking cult. <coughs> well, what do you think when Jesus says it?
First John chapter 4, the Apostle of John, don't turn to it, but the Apostle John says, They that are of God hear us. The Apostle said, If you're of God, you hear us. Now wait, now, now John is not Jesus. Now what's he say? He's saying that the Apostles, who have been authoritatively given the words of Christ, and who have by the Holy Spirit received the truth and all the truth, as Jesus said, when he, the Spirit of truth, shall come, he shall lead you into all truth. The apostolic message carries with it the full authority of Jesus himself. And if you are of God, you will not only hear Jesus, you will hear the apostles. May we boil that down to what it means. If you are of God... The Bible is all true to you. You hear it, you agree with it, you believe it, you may not understand all of it, but you have no problem with its authenticity, its authority, and you live as best you can in the light of it. If you don't, you're not a Christian. Simple as that. If you're of God, you hear God's Word in His Son and in His appointed Apostles. message is the truth and brethren if it's the truth then everything else is not now let's get this straight there is no such thing as believing in the true God while rejecting Jesus Christ there is no such thing as believing in God not the true God while rejecting Jesus Christ. And when I say rejecting Jesus Christ, I mean rejecting Him as God, His claims to deity. He is creator of the world. Nothing that was made was made apart from Him. He is the ruler of providence. He is called the king, uh, the ruler of the kings of the earth. The only one worthy to open the seals of the historical outworking of God's judgments in the world. This is the judge of the world. This is God himself. And if you don't accept him that way, you don't know God. Not only his deity, but you must receive him and believe upon him in his saving purpose and work. Now why do I say that? Because many today believe in a Jesus who has no reference to their sins. He is a good teacher. He's a good example. He's one of many. Maybe he's even the best. He may even be the only one, but he's not the Savior from sinners. They don't even have reference to sin. They don't preach against sin. They're not afraid of sin. Sin's not the problem. Suffering is the problem. The innocent in the world. Poverty that's brought about by bad people and not about by, by sin. Poverty that's a result of poor environment. The problems that just happen to us and we can fix them if we could get all of your attention and get you people to give our political action committee some more donations. I don't mean to characterize everybody that's putting out for poverty that he's a bad man, but I'm saying to you that to neglect the claims of Christ regarding his saving purpose is to reject Christ. You can't have God's Son apart from God's Son who was sent from heaven to establish a spiritual kingdom to bear witness to the truth of that kingdom by saving sinners. His death, his shedding of blood is the way to be to God. 
and the only way. You can't talk of Christ apart from a Savior who dies, a suffering Savior. To try to redefine Jesus into some noble leader. Have you heard Saddam Hussein quoting Jesus during this conference? Yes. He has quoted Jesus to show us why we're of the devil. I heard him quoting Jesus. The, the teachings of Jesus we've denied by our, our violent imperialistic assaults on his innocent people. See, the Muslims have a high view of Jesus. Relatively speaking, he's a prophet of God. They believe his teachings. They just don't believe that he died and rose from the dead to save sinners from their sins. They don't believe he's the prophet of God. There's a better one. There's a later one. There's a more full prophet of God. He is God's prophet. There is one God, Allah, and his prophet, Muhammad. So when the world quotes Jesus as a means of getting sympathy or as getting its political agenda but rejects him as God's son to save them from their sins that require confession and repentance and departing from sin and humble submission to him as Lord of lords, they're not preaching the Christ of the Bible and therefore they don't know God. There's no such thing as believing in the true God and rejecting Christ as he's presented in the scriptures. Brethren, you may not want to accept Jesus as he's presented in the Bible, but at least be honest with that's what you're doing. You're rejecting Christ. You may say, I don't like that. That's fine. That's your, that's your privilege. You're free to, not to like it. But you can't have it both ways. You can't tear up half of what he said and what most of what the Bible says about him and then keep him. You don't have him anymore. <clears throat> you're offended at a, at a bloodletting religion. Sacrifices bother you. Being saved by grace and not your own righteousness bugs you. Fine, but understand that you're rejecting the Christ of the Bible when you say that. You can't have God without His Son on His terms. Do you understand that? You can't pick the religion that suits you best and decide what parts of Jesus you'll take. All you've done when you do that is created your own religion. You have your own idol. You may as well go into the backyard, cut down a maple tree, cut off a stump of it, carve it into a little figure, set it up with a little shrine and bow down to it and say, Wonderful God, save me. You may as well do that because that's all you have done when you've recreated Jesus in your own image. Whatever we do, at least let us be honest with what the Bible says Jesus Christ is and does. There's another thing. There's no such thing as loving truth and turning away from the Bible as the primary authority of truth, as the only ultimate authority of truth. He that is of God hears us. And when I say hears, I mean you receive the message of the Bible with an utter commitment to live in the light of its implications. If you don't want the Bible to have the final authority on the way you live, then let's admit it, you don't want to be a Christian. You have not the right to select your favorite passages or to select the portions of Scripture that are righteous and leave out the ones that are distasteful. It's all God's Word, it's all true, and you can't know the truth, love the truth, believe the truth, and obey the truth apart from the Scriptures. There is no truth that God's revealed beyond the Scriptures. The full revelation of God's will is in the Scriptures. 
the finality, the sufficiency, the authority of the scriptures is fundamental. It's the first article of our confession to faith. Why? Because it's vital. Some says, no, let's put the doctrine of the Bible next. Let's put God first. You can't deal with God until you understand how God revealed himself. The orthodoxy first defines God and then defines the Bible, and it's backward. And the reason it's backward is that you can't define God apart from revealed religion. He has spoken. You first hear what he says, and then you decide who he is, based on what he says he is. Otherwise, you'll never find out who he is. Your mind is not enough, not righteous or, bright, or smart enough to figure out God. God must reveal. And graciously, he has revealed in the scriptures. You read the Bible? You read it faithfully? Do you read it regularly? Do you read it frequently? Do you read it with the purpose of knowing the will of God for your life? With the full intention of doing what you find there to do? If that's not your habit, you seriously need to question whether you have ever come to saving knowledge of Christ. He has exclusive claims on the truth. But then let's think briefly that he also is absolutely trustworthy in the truth. goes without saying almost, but we must say it. A lot of applications could be made, but he is called the faithful and the true and the amen. Amen meaning, if Jesus says it, it's so. He is God's amen. He is God's exclamation mark on truth. He, in him, all the truths of God in Christ are amen and yea. All the promises of God in Christ are yes. It's the nature of his person. How could he say anything that isn't true? He is the truth. It's impossible for Jesus to utter a falsehood, to mislead you, to exaggerate, to cut off parts of the truth. He cannot. It's impossible. It's not his nature. It's our nature to exaggerate to pair off the edges of truth, it's his nature to be truth and to speak truth. He's absolutely trustworthy in what he says. This very passage highlights it in verse 32, that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled. Very few would have thought that Jesus Christ would have been able to get it work so he would be crucified. They tried to throw him off a cliff. They tried to stone him. They tried everything they could to kill him, and he managed to avoid it without raising a sword or without raising an army, without one physical defense. Why? Because when he says something, it's going to happen. That the word of Jesus might be fulfilled. Notice the glory of Christ's work. His person makes him unable to speak anything but truth, and the glory of his work. What do you mean by that? I mean by that that if you study his life and his ministry you'll quickly discover that everything the Old Testament said was going to happen, happened. Everything he had spoken in the Old Testament about what he was going to do when he came, he did. wouldn't take long to go back to the Old Testament just to find a sampling. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, God's going to raise up another prophet like me. You hear him. <clears throat> Speaking of Christ. In Psalm 22, in the Psalms, we read the first verse of that psalm, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then it opens up the nature of crucifixion. And all that passage deals with their casting lots. 
They pierced his side. They didn't break his bones. A description of his death on the cross several hundred years before it happened in Psalm 22. In Isaiah 53, that wonderful passage. I want you to turn with me. There's two reasons. 53 of Isaiah. One is, I want the saints to see it and feel it and get under it again that God is utterly true in his promises. But I want you who are not saved to read this gospel message and let it sink to your heart. I read a biography one time of a Jewish man who was in prison. And in prison, he kept resisting the gospel efforts of saved chaplains and men trying to influence him. And he wouldn't listen. And he was hated the gospel. And he hated Jesus. He was raised to hate Jesus. And one day, he just decided to read his Old Testament. And he read, got into Isaiah 53. And he got into Isaiah 53, and he couldn't get around it. He couldn't escape it. God the Spirit gripped his conscience and his heart. And he saw that here's my Savior. This has to be the Son of God. It has to be Jesus. And he got saved and got out of prison a new man and a preacher of righteousness. Chapter 53 of Isaiah, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of man a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. In other words, we didn't see in that bruising the glories of his saving work. We were we saw that and it turned us off. That was the perspective of the nation of Israel. This gory scene was not attractive to them. Hey, brethren, it is why many in religion, in Christendom, have painted the cross gold and put halos on him and made it art. Brethren, you can't turn that into art. You mustn't try. There's something there that you can't put on canvas and mustn't. You mustn't hang it on your wall. You really, in my view, shouldn't hang it around your neck. It shouldn't symbolize because you can't get an accurate symbol. You can't plumb the depths. You produce an idol. You don't get truth out. The Lord Jesus died and we saw it as something that needed to be decorated up. But I tell you, the saints see it as the most beautiful picture in their in their life in their history. They see that blood trickling down from a pierced brow, and they see those hands nailed and pierced and pinned to a tree that he made, and they see those feet bleeding and those pins in them, and they see that side gushing out water and blood, and they see, hear the sighs, and they see him giving up his spirit for their sins, and they love it. And they give praise and adoration and thanks to God when they see it. But the sinner sees him as stricken, smitten, and unesteemed. And yet, verse 5, the reason we love that scene is because he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. 
all we and this is the confession that must come from your lips for you to be saved all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all you describe you explain that passage apart from the cross of Jesus Christ you explain Psalm 22 apart from the cross of Jesus Christ you explain all the prophets and the law and the psalms apart from Jesus Christ who will bruise Satan's head if Jesus didn't who will save us from our sins if Jesus didn't who is God's truth where is God's truth if Christ isn't who will rule over us and our enemies for good if he doesn't to whom do we look we saw the movie Fiddler on the Roof and one of the lines in that old movie and in that play was the Messiah is going to come how long when's he going to come we just must keep waiting we must look another place where is, are we going to be when he comes well we'll have to be in another place he won't be here but we'll keep waiting and how sad what that does to the heart of a believer when he hears that line in that play and looks at the history of Jews for 2,000 years who are still blind. The veil is over their eyes and how it breaks your heart and you wish you could come and shake him and say, Oh man, open your eyes. You do have a Messiah. He's come. He is on the throne of David. He saves sinners. You're a sinner. You have a Savior. You don't have to live in wishful thinking. You don't need to try to get the sympathies of the political leaders of the world onto your cause and look down and feel yourself beaten down. You can rise and glorify God and worship and praise and enjoy Him. You don't have to keep seeing yourself as undone. It breaks your heart. But if we'll come to that place of understanding that the Scriptures prophesied it and Jesus fulfilled it, it will help strengthen our confidence in him as absolutely trustworthy in the truth. You will notice also everything he said was going to happen has happened except his second coming. That's the only thing left. Everything else so far has happened. He rose from the dead. He sent the Spirit. The, war is filled with, the world is filled with wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and pestilences and all the things he predicted. I mean, you look around yourself, how do you explain it? He said it was going to be this way. Oh, dear brethren, what, it, it raises the ire of the righteous heart to hear men quoting Nostradamus. And even some in Christian circles beginning to go back to his writings to see how he, what he got hold of truth. When we have all we need in Jesus. But I tell you this, you can glean much encouragement as a saint of God in the absolute trustworthiness of Jesus Christ. He is a faithful and true witness. If he's made a promise to you, he'll keep it. And don't think that he can't keep it. Oh, how I would love to kill Arminianism. I'd love to put it down. I'd like to stab it in its heart and cut its head off. Because it leads many people to think that life is left up to them. Somehow Jesus wants to rule in your heart, but... If you don't let him, he can't. Well, then if he won't, if he can't rule you without your permission, how's he going to rule the kings of the earth? 
If he can't have his will in his own people, how is he going to have his will in Russia or China? How can he possibly raise the dead if he depends on their will? I tell you, you have a God in the Lord Jesus who not only is willing to keep his word, but is absolutely capable of every word he will see that it comes to pass. As he made promises to your soul, and if you see it in the scriptures, you may rely on it. As he said to you, he will withhold no good thing from them who walk uprightly. He means it. As he said, prove him with the tithes and offerings. He'll pour out a blessing you can't hold. He means that. I could give you testimonies in this building of people that have proven that. When he says, trust him, don't worry about tomorrow. He knows your needs. He means that. Seek his kingdom first and and his righteousness and all the things you need he'll add to you. That's true. I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's true. You can rest on that. You can sell your whole life for that. You can lose everything and that won't change. He is the rock of our salvation. It is incapable of lying to us. God, who cannot lie, has spoken and sealed it with an oath and sealed it with His blood and sealed it with His resurrection. And the Scriptures are filled with promises and they are all in Christ. Amen. Don't worry, ladies, about your husband and his job. The Lord is in charge of employment. You tell him the truth, though. Don't cow down to him. When he sins, you tell him. You pray for him. But God will be enough for you if you walk rightly. Men, don't get all upset about the economy. I know how, how tempting it is. It's frustrating. But the Lord knows what you need before you ask him. He is not forsaking you. You do your duty. You give your diligence to work. When you're out of work, you hit the pavement Monday morning and you give your eight hours a day looking for a job until you can give eight hours a day doing a job. Don't say, well, I needed a break anyway and take the next three weeks lying around watching TV. You do all that's right and trust God and He'll bring it to pass. He's faithful. Well, I want quickly to draw out some lessons. One is an an, an obvious lesson and it's one of the favorites in apologetics. The claims of Jesus Christ are either true or Jesus Christ is one of two things. He's either a liar and perhaps one of the most noble of all history or he's a lunatic. He cannot possibly be both true and lying. If his claims aren't true, then he's a liar. Well, you say, well, he meant what he said. He wasn't lying. He just was deceived. Then he's a lunatic because he claimed to be God. He claims to be the only way to God. He claims that he himself is the embodiment and personification of truth. Don't dilly-dally with this nonsense that says Jesus is one way. Brethren, if he's not the way, he is no way. Don't call him a great teacher and while he lies to you. Don't call him a noble leader and example when he's a fool. Be honest. He's either everything he claims to be or you don't need to give any time, waste your time with him. Don't play church. 
Don't attach yourself to a traditional Christian church if you're not ready to come to grips with the claims of Christ on you and for you. He's not one among many teachers. In one real sense, he is the only teacher. Be not you called master, he said to his disciples. There is one master. There is one rabbi, even Christ. All other teachers and all other teachings must be rooted in him. Because by him are all things created. According to Colossians, in him all things hold together. Did you know that atomic energy and nuclear physics is a study of Christ? Did you know that? That's not a departure from religious teaching. It is in its strictest sense not religion, but it's Christ's truth. He holds the atoms together. And when you study the atomic makeup of the universe, you're studying the aspects of the reality of Christ enthroned who holds those atoms together. You explain why they, why they stay together. You can identify the laws, but you can't explain why they work unless you know Jesus. That's why in your educational system you start with God and God's Son. There's no contradiction. You don't end there, but you start there. Sometime read Psalm 78 and examine the elements of biblical education the subject matter of good education. What it is fathers are supposed to pass on to their kids. It'll provide your curriculum for homeschooling and every other form of schooling. It includes the order of the universe. It includes biology and chemistry and math. It includes history and sociology and psychology. It includes all the disciplines, both of the fine arts, of the liberal arts, and of every other thing. Don't be ashamed of claiming the truths of God. You see, everything that's true comes from Him. Or you don't know where it comes from, brethren. And you can't rely on it. Once you've torn out the underpinnings of the foundation of truth, you have no direction. You have no confidence. Every school building in this nation ought to have written on its cornerstone... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. No, that would be mixing church and state. That's mixing religion with, with education. Brethren, you can't have true education apart from religion. Not true. You may have to put your kids sometime in a school where they don't teach Christ, but don't you let your kids think they've been taught everything, and you make sure you explain to them that there's some things that are being taught wrong because the foundations were wrong. And if in a real sense, the more you send them to public school, the more parenting you have to do. If you think you're going to send them to school, keep a clear conscience and not increase your parenting and your home teaching, that's not worked that way. You have to spend more time at night undoing if you know what's being done. It's not wrong to do it, but you've got to be prepared to do it. Every teacher in the world will ultimately be judged by Jesus Christ and by the standard of the truth as it is in Jesus every teacher this fundamental fact is the foundation of all knowledge and should be the beginning lesson in every piece of the curriculum the claims of Christ are true let God be true and all others be liars
But second, I want to ask you to consider which category you fall in that we've observed in this passage. Are you a self-righteous religionist who needs no instruction, a critic of preaching and preachers, a critic of scripture, waiting to catch some word out of your prophet that you can trap him with? Are you a Pharisee? Can nobody get to your conscience? Have you got yourself insulated in your brilliance, in your own private study, in your own intelligence? Beware. God knows. Don't be among those who, while they did right and condemned the truth in their face, had no idea that they were headed for the day of reckoning. Are you a secularist like Pilate, hiding behind agnostic front, saying, what is truth? You see, his perspective is, nobody can really know what truth is. Don't hold my conscience accountable for the truth. Who? What's truth? Is that where you are? Are you one of these modern educated ones who says, look, I've been sitting in this church now for just a little over an hour listening to you speak. You're making all these sweeping claims because you want everybody to follow you. You're, you're twisting the Bible and making it say what you want it to say. Brethren, how dare you? You wouldn't say that if you had any inkling of what the Bible said. But you sit and you say, well, nobody can really know the truth. I'm afraid of committing myself to one way. What if it's the wrong way, brethren? You've got to hit it someday. That psychological fear of commitment is destroying lots of souls. Plunge yourself on the revelation of God's word. Believe the gospel. Repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus. And you shall be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Pilate says what's truth, but that didn't get him off the hook. Everyone is responsible for the truth. You're responsible to find it. You're responsible to believe it. You're responsible to obey it. And you'll find that out when you come to the day of judgment if you're not willing to submit to it now. You're responsible for the truth. Don't believe it because I say it. But don't hesitate to open your Bible and wait three or four weeks and say, well, I still don't know what that pastor said was true. If I have meant what I said and if I've said the truth today, why would you want to wait 15 minutes before finding out if it's in the Bible? If what I've said is true, you're going to head for judgment soon. And you're going to stand before Jesus Christ by whom God is going to judge the whole world. If what I've said is true, you are headed for a reckoning day. And unless you're found to be in Christ and Christ alone, you will be kicked, cast into the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, where their smoke ascends up forever and their torment never ends. Now is that not worth investigating? You may be tempted this never to come back here. Well, I'm not going to put up with that, but at least understand I have not said anything today that is not founded in Scripture. And what you're saying is, I don't want to hear the Bible. Don't turn from this church and go to some other because somehow you don't want to be searched the way the Spirit of God did today. You haven't escaped. Face up to it. You're dealing with the Bible. Take it or leave it, but it's the Bible. If it's not God's Word, then don't waste time in a Christian church. Do something else, but at least be honest with what you've done. What will you do with Christ? 
You must answer that question. Save yourself from a generation of those that are pretending to put it off and hoping it'll go away. Oh, dear people, it will not go away. You must answer the question, what is truth? God has answered it. God has spoken. Fall at the feet of him who is the truth and worship him. And let him free you from these idle wanderings of your life and from your sin. Well, there's much else that could be said. But I want to leave it with that and let your conscience deal with God. I'll just conclude with this remark. The terms on which the Lord Jesus Christ offers himself to you, the sinner, are the only terms whereby you may ever know him or have the benefit of his provision. And they are these. You must confess from the heart that you're wrong, that you've sinned, that you've gone your way. And you must confess from the heart that he's right and that he has a right to judge you. And you must bow to his means of saving you. And you must believe what he says. There is no other escape for you. You will not escape apart from Christ but in him you will escape you will escape this bloody conscience you will escape your dread of the future you will escape your neurosis you will escape your bitterness and anger you will escape your fears and your doubts in the Lord Jesus Christ you will learn what it means at the end of a prayer and a sermon to say Amen In the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll learn what it means to stand with him as a faithful witness against the opponents of your generation rather than as a silent witness. Because you'll lose your dread of being wrong when you come to know the Lord Jesus. You won't be self-righteous, but you'll be clothed in a righteousness that is sufficient to satisfy God. And there'll be a peace in the heart that no man can take away. And there'll be a reason for your living. But you wondered how long you could have lived without it. Once you know it. Do not wait to bow to Christ. Run to Christ and call on the name of Christ. If you've not gotten that settled, may God help you get it settled today. Before you get home, cry to God. Confess your sins. Ask Him to save you. He does save sinners who call upon Him. You have his word on it. And he's the faithful witness. Let us bow. Our Father, we ask you now that you would stop the devil from getting into the heart and the thought and disrupting the truth as it searches. And that you would liberate some who have lived in the darkness all these years. And make them to lift their eyes and to see in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ the glory of God. Oh God, do that work of saving grace today among some of these to whom we have been privileged to preach. And make us the next time we see them to look upon the eyes and the faces of those who have been transformed 
transported from darkness to light and who are sitting at the feet of Christ and saying with the psalmist how amiable are thy tabernacles O Lord O God our Father we know that the truth does not make sense unless you make it make sense we know that we'll never understand it by research but only by faith we cry to you to give it in great measure to us and to those that hear us O Lord we believe your word help our unbelief strengthen the faith and glorify your name and your truth in this earth we ask it in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ whom we utterly trust and who is utterly trustworthy Amen, Amen.